We're one church. We meet in more than one location each Lord's Day. Some are, are in our Bluffton, Hilton Head campus, and I look forward to being there with you for Meet the Pastor. If you're a guest and you're looking for a church home or have questions, I hope you'll stay for the potluck and meet the pastor at 1.30. Grays will be there next Sunday after the second service, and I hope uh, you'll this week make a concerted effort to invite at least one person, everyone in attendance there. And let's do the same here this week, okay? Let's reach out. Now, wherever you are, let's bow our heads and close our eyes and be still before our God. Father, we look forward to the day when the trump of God shall sound, when we will hear the voice of the archangel and Jesus will come to retrieve and catch up his church, that the dead in Christ will come out of the grave first, and then those of us who are alive will be caught up to meet him in the air. What a grand and glorious day. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that though your name is often ignored, spoken of in really evil ways, used in vain, that your Father has given you the name above every name, and a day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you indeed are Lord. We earnestly look forward to that day. We are filled with joy this morning that our, heart, that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. May our hearts equally be filled with compassion for those who abuse your name, for those who ignore it, those who mock it, those who live against it. For we too were once foolish, living in our own desires, but when your grace appeared, you regenerated us and saved us and made us new creatures. Give us confidence with the power of the gospel. Thank you that it's not entertainment and man's slick presentations, but it's the foolishness of preaching that the Spirit of God uses to awaken dead hearts. May he do that today for those listening here and in other places. And may those who have met you, may our love grow more fervent, may it grow deeper. Father, help me today by your Spirit. Fill me and anoint me and use me here and later today and then meet the pastors that we have May you be glorified in all that is said and done, and I ask it in Jesus' holy name, amen. I want to invite you to take your Bibles, please, this morning and turn to John chapter 21. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through the Revelation chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and Lord willing, next week we'll return to that. But since this is the Easter season and the Sunday after Easter, you can see the topic is loving Christ after Easter. I don't want you ever to become one of those persons who once or twice a year show up at church. Now, many of those who do that do it because it's the religious thing to do. They're just lost. But many others know Christ. They have been born from above, but they are disobedient. They have forsaken the assembling together of the brethren, and their hearts have grown cold and apathetic towards the things of God. And I want to say here this morning, if your love for Christ and your service for Him has become a drudgery, if your fellowship with Him is not as sweet as it once was, if you've lost that passionate, burning zeal to live your life for Jesus Christ, you need to listen carefully this morning, either for yourself or possibly for someone that you're going to help. Now, John's gospel begins with a prologue and it ends with an epilogue. And both the prologue and the epilogue really are about Jesus Christ. But here in the epilogue, 
John concludes his gospel by focusing not just on the Lord Jesus, but also on the Apostle Peter. We want to begin reading this morning in verse 15 of John chapter 21. Follow along in your Bibles, if you will. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, the one who also had leaned back on his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the word itself would not contain the books that would be written. Let me set the context for our passage this morning. If you have a Bible in front of you, the chapter opens with these words. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. The body of water that we typically call the Sea of Galilee is referred by different names in the Bible, and one of those names is the Sea of Tiberias. Here's a map of the Sea of Galilee. Some of you have been with me to Israel, and as we come down into Tiberias, you're up on a high, really hill, a mountain of sorts, and at one instance, you can see the entire Sea of Galilee, almost the aerial view that you see on this map, and it looks like a harp. And so the Jewish people, to this day and throughout the Old Testament, it's called the Sea of Chinnereth, because the Hebrew word Chinnereth means harp. It's a sea that looks like a harp. It's also here on the western shore, you see a town called Tiberias. Tiberias was founded by the emperor Tiberius at 22 AD, so he named the town after himself, and you might as well call the sea after yourself as well, Sea of Tiberias. If you're on the other side of the lake, see that place called Kersey? Kersey is the place where, if you remember, Jesus met two demonically possessed men. They were living among the tombs. There were uh, a couple of thousand pigs there. You can go to this very place today. Uh, It's a well-established place. If you're on the eastern side of the lake, they call it the Lake of Gennesaret. 
So you very often refer to the place based on your location. I grew up in a city called Worcester, Massachusetts. In different sections of the city, one section was called Greendale. Now it was Worcester, but it was Greendale. This is the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Kinnereth. It is the Sea of Gennesaret, but most commonly, of course, it's called the Sea of Galilee. Now, most people, when they hear the word sea, they assume some kind of saltwater body. This is a freshwater lake, a large lake of sorts. It's about 13 miles long and about 8 miles wide. And so here, there on the western side, verse 2 tells us, and this is important, there were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus. You remember Thomas? We studied him last week. His Greek name was Didymus, which means twin. He was a twin. Peter, one, Thomas, two, Nathaniel of Cana, three, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, that's five and six, uh, four and five, and then two others for a total of six and seven, uh, seven disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. I suppose this is one of the few fishing stories that's true. We fished all night, and we didn't catch a thing. And of course, Jesus is going to teach them a powerful lesson in the days to come. What he had taught them on the night he was betrayed there in that vineyard, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's a zero with the rim kicked off. I mean absolutely nothing that is of meaning, that is of value, that is of a spiritual nature, unless he is empowering you. They can't even fish successfully apart from him. Verse 4, but when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. Now, the word children, peta in Greek, is much like the word lads or sirs in British English. Or in American English, we might say, hey, boys or, or guys. It's not the term of endearment that John uses in other places, little children. Jesus is basically saying, hey, guys, have you caught any fish? Now, we talked about the difference of Christ and his resurrection body, and at this point, they don't recognize him. So here's this man on the shore. Maybe he's saying, hey, have you caught any fish? Because he wants to buy some. Or maybe just like you, when you go out on some pier somewhere and say, hey, did you catch anything? We're always kind of curious. How are the fish running today? That's kind of the thought. And it's phrased in Greek such that it expects a negative answer. You haven't caught anything, have you? And of course, they come back with an embarrassing no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, that's the context of our passage. In the first chapter, first half of the chapter, if you remember, Jesus uses this to teach, among other things, that as Christians, we are to be fishers of men. Now, he begins first with the restoration of Peter's ministry. They're on the beach, there's going to be a breakfast, and it centers at first with the restoration of Peter's ministry. Peter and the Lord Jesus had met privately before this time, 
And there is no question that this issue of Peter's betrayal had already been dealt with. There are two passages that tell us on Resurrection Sunday that Jesus had a private meeting with Peter. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So Jesus appeared to Peter before he appeared to the twelve there in the upper room. The Emmaus Road disciples said there in the upper room, the Lord has really risen and he has appeared to Simon. So he had already been personally restored. And that clearly, as we will see in our passage this morning, is reflected in Peter's attitude because when he recognizes it's the Lord, he's not hiding in shame, he jumps out of the boat and runs towards the Lord Jesus. But you know he still has to have a cloud of sorts over his head because this one who so boastfully said he would never deny the Lord three times denied him. And so Jesus is now going to publicly restore him. Private sins should be confessed in private. Public sins are dealt with in public. You don't say, well, I forgave so-and-so today for lying about me when only one or two people knew about it. The biblical principle is restoration or confession, whatever the situation may be, is as public as the sin. So when we uh, exercise church discipline on a person, something the Bible teaches we are to do. If your brother sins, reprove him. If he doesn't listen, take two or three. If he doesn't listen, take it to the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, then remove him. If that person comes back, and on occasion they do, for that's the focus and purpose of church discipline, then you publicly restore that individual. Well, since Peter had three times publicly denied the Lord, three times, in essence, the Lord is going to restore him to a place of leadership. But before that, I want you to see how Christ recalls Peter's failure. I want you to see how Christ recalls Peter's failure. And to do that, he asks a question. Let me read it here in verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, what exactly did Jesus mean when he said, do you love me more than these? I probably do not need to tell you that there are at least three principal ways that people have handled this text. Only one can be correct, but let me share the three principal ways. First, do you love me more than you love these disciples? That's how some would take it. Second, do you love me more than you love these boats and these fishing nets, this, this career, so to speak? Or third, do you love me more than these disciples love me? So let's think our way through it. Remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. First, there are some who've interpreted this to mean, do you love me, Peter, more than you love these disciples? I really don't think that's what it means because, for one... There had never really been a problem among the disciples, and they all certainly loved the Lord supremely, though not completely. But it's argued that when Peter uh, denied the Lord on that day, on that night, and abandoned Christ, that he obviously loved the disciples more than they loved, Je loved Jesus, because he's now hanging with the disciples and, quote-unquote, maybe abandoning Christ. I don't think that is correct, because it doesn't fit with the other Gospels. Yes, Peter did deny the Lord three times, but to isolate Peter from all the other disciples would not be 
true and fair and right and righteous because if you remember all the disciples that night, every one of them abandoned Christ. Zechariah the prophet had predicted, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And of course, John quotes that, Matthew does in his gospel. Second, some have taken this question, do you love me more than these? Meaning, do you love me more than these fish, than these boats, than this fishing gear? Were those instruments, so to speak, represent a way of life? And if you take it that way, as some have, then the question is a challenge to Peter's future plans. But there is absolutely zero evidence that Peter basically said, listen, I'm more in love with fishing than I am with Christ. And none of these men appear to have, for that matter, there's seven total here, a divided heart. But the interpretation where that is taught is from a misunderstanding of verse 3. So follow verse 3 carefully. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Now, why do these seven men go fishing? Again, there have been a lot of explanations. I've heard a lot of colorful, dramatic preaching, but it's just wrong. Sometimes pastors don't prepare well, and they come up with something because it's just, it makes for a good illustration, and it makes for a moving sermon, but it's not true. And that's why we are to carefully, not just as pastors, but every Christian, carefully study the Word. One popular commentator writes that, uh, that this is a group of men who are out of fellowship with God, and this is the fulfillment of what Jesus said in John 16, too. Let me read what Jesus said in John 16, 2. That night he predicted, behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. Matthew further clarifies in his account, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, and Jesus quotes the prophet Zechariah, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Putting John and Matthew's account together, clearly this is a reference to the arrest of Jesus, not to many days later here on this beach. Nonetheless, it is argued by some that these guys are just, well, they're out of fellowship with God. So because they're out of fellowship and their heart isn't right, we're going fishing and Peter leads the way. I'm going fishing and they say Peter's very egotistical and the others follow him as the leader. We'll come too. And some even take it further to say that they all have a divided heart such that they're basically quitting the ministry. We quit. This is it. We're done. Now the truth is, is that these men are right smack in the center of God's will. They are not out of fellowship, and they have certainly not quit the ministry. We know that because in John chapter 20 in the upper room, Jesus gave them a commission. Prophetically, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. He taught them that they could not effectively minister for him until they received the Spirit of God. And if you remember at the ascension of Christ... Uh, on the day 40, Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, walked on the earth for 40 days. On the 40th day, 10 days before Pentecost, he ascends into heaven. And on the day of the ascension, Luke records, 
I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And that's exactly what they do between day 40 and day 50 when Pentecost, the 50th day of the Feast of Fruits, an Old Testament feast is fulfilled and the Spirit comes and says, stay in the city of Jerusalem just like Jesus said. But we are somewhere between Resurrection Sunday and day 40 before the Ascension. My point is, is that there's zero evidence that Peter or any of the disciples are abandoning the commission when they are going to fish. They are not engaged in ministry yet because Jesus had told them on the night he was betrayed and he affirmed it again in the upper room on Resurrection Sunday and he affirmed it a third time in the ascension that you don't need to go out and do anything for me until you receive the Spirit. This was the promise of the new covenant. Today, the moment you become a believer in Jesus, you receive the Spirit. This is between the covenants, between the old deal and the new deal. These were all believers. But in the truest sense, they had not yet been born again. They had not yet become individual temples of the Spirit of God because the Spirit had not yet been given until the day of Pentecost. So these guys, rather than just remain idle and sit around, they're workers. No wonder Jesus picked fishermen among others because they know how to work. And there's a lot of people who have little influence for Christ in this life for the simple reason that they are lazy. Not to mention, these guys have got to eat, so let's go fishing. And so, of course, Jesus promised his disciples in Matthew chapter 26, why are they here in this place called Tabgah, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee? Why are they in the province of Galilee? Because Jesus told them to go there. In Matthew 26, 32, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And if you remember, we studied it last week. Mary Magdalene was told by Jesus and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Galilee was their home. They lived in a place called Bethsaida. There's two Bethsaidas in the Bible. There's one on the eastern shore, and there's one on the western shore. If you remember when Jesus fed the 5,000, he did it in Bethsaida, and he sends them to Bethsaida. Why? Because there's two Bethsaidas, just like there's two Bethlehems and two a lot of places in the Bible. So they're in this place, we call it Tabga today, the place of the seven springs. Six of those seven springs have been identified, seven warm springs. If you remember at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, they left their nets, they followed him, he did some miracles, and then some days later, the Bible says they left everything after he did a miracle. And where did he do the miracle? On the same beach they are at on this morning, Tabgah, where they docked their boats just a short distance from Capernaum, which was the home headquarters of Jesus' public ministry after he was rejected in Nazareth. Why? Because it's in the spring of the year. Why? Because the water's cold. Where are you going to catch fish when the water's cold? Where the water's warmest. And there's one place in the whole Sea of Galilee where there are seven warm springs. And that's where on that first occasion they had fished all night 
Jesus said, hey, why don't you go out a little bit into the deep? That doesn't make sense. Jesus, you're a carpenter, not a fisherman. But because you said so, we'll do it. They go out in the deep where the water's colder, and they catch so many fish, the boats begin to sink. Three plus years later, it's April 32 AD, water's cold, spring of the year, so where do you go fishing? Where the water's warm. That's where they are at. And so they are in Galilee, and Matthew 28, 16 says, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. So I heard a sermon once on how to overcome depression, and they used this text from John chapter 21, and they exegetically abused the text. It has nothing to do with overcoming depression. Jesus had already forgiven Peter. In Luke 24, 34, it says, the Lord appeared to Simon. Peter is not in some deep depression. When he recognizes it's Jesus, he jumps out of the boat and he runs towards him through the water. He has already been forgiven, but he needs to be publicly reinstated. He's not despondent. He's not deserting his call. He is here in Galilee because that's where Christ commanded them to go. And I suspect the mountain is just a half a mile away, what we call today the Mount of Beatitudes. So I obviously wouldn't be dogmatic on that because we don't know that for sure. So here's a group of men gone fishing. Why? Because they are in Galilee where Jesus told them to be. And they are waiting for the promise of Pentecost. So I don't think the Lord is asking, do you love me more than fishing? You cannot come up with that explanation unless you read into the text and you deny other clear passages of Scripture. Not to mention, why focus on Peter alone? You love me more than these? There's seven guys who were fishing there that day. Nor do I think is he asking, do you love me more than you love these disciples? I think there's a third way to understand more than these. And I think the context clearly brings it out. Do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Which, by the way, assumes that they are still present on the shore, and there's no reason why they wouldn't want to be. Jesus is there on the shore. Where would you want to be? Where Jesus is. Oh, hey, Jesus, we're we're, we're leaving. We got some things. No, you want to be where he is. They're all there. I mean, where would you have gone The key issue here is Peter's love for the Lord Jesus, and it's a key issue for you, and it's a key issue for me. Peter, do you love me more than these disciples love me like you said you did that night in the upper room? Peter boasted about his great love and even contrasted his love with that of the other disciples. In John 13, 37, Peter said, I will lay down my life for you. Not weep, but I, I will do it. I'll lay down my life for you. And of course, not only did he not die for him, when confronted about his relationship with Christ, he denies him three times. Now, Peter, with boldness there in the Garden of Gethsemane, I'll die for you, Jesus, took out that sword and cut off Malchus's ear. And he said in Matthew 26, 33, even though all may fall away, meaning all the apostles, because of you, I will never fall away. It's pretty boastful. But Peter believed it to be true. 
He believed that he had a more passionate, faithful love than all the other men. And that explanation fits the flow of thought, not just with the other gospels, but with the encounter that Jesus is going to have with Peter on this beach. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He's, he's probing Peter's con conscience here at Tabga, here at Bethsaida of Galilee. Now, if you go there today to Tabga or Bethsaida of Galilee, it's a Roman Catholic spot. They monitor the land, and they do a beautiful job with it. They keep it up. It's a very pleasant place to go. But they call it the primacy of Peter. And there in the fence, there's a picture of either a name or a picture of every single pope since Peter. And they have Peter right down to the latest pope, Pope Francis. And they say on this beach, on this day, Jesus isolates Peter out of all the apostles, and they couple this with Matthew 16, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and they misinterpret Matthew 16 from a Latin translation of the Bible, and they say Peter is being here put in a place of prominence. He is being declared the first pope. So the Lord Jesus is reminding Peter, really, of his self-confident nature. He says to him, Simon, son of John. Do you remember Peter when he first met the Lord? Let me read John 1.42. He said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. And then on that day when Peter made his great confession of faith, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my Father who is in heaven, and I will say to you that you are Peter. But now Jesus goes back to his old name, to his original name. Jesus knew that he could not really restore a fallen person of their guilt, or in this case, a, a person who needed to be restored before his other compatriots by minimizing the seriousness of what Peter did or concealing the source of the problem. But he doesn't leave Peter in limbo. So beyond Peter's failure, I want you to notice how Christ reinstates Peter's favor. Let's think for just a moment about how Christ reinstates Peter's favor there in your outline in your bulletin. We read now in verse 15, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, three times the Lord's going to ask Peter a question, and three times Peter is going to respond, and three times the Lord Jesus is going to give him a commission. When our Lord asks Peter the question three times, it looks like repetition, but believe me, it is not. No two questions are similar. Each one is distinct. Now, let me just pause here for a moment. Most of you know that there are four words in the Greek of the first century, what we call common or Koine Greek, for the word love. English sometimes is a beggar for words. Greek is not. And no wonder God inspired the New Testament in Greek. And John, very carefully, under the inspiration of the Spirit, takes different Greek words that are being interchanged here to make a very important point. Now, the four words, first, there's the word eros. It's actually not found in the New Testament. We get our word erotic from it. It refers to sexual or physical attraction. Sensual love can be evil if it's lust, but God is not against sexual intimacy when it's between a man and a woman and in a marriage, period. 
But interestingly, in the first century, much like in the 21st century, Eros was so abused, so it had become so wicked, so central to culture, they even had a god named Eros that they worshipped and had worship services where they engaged in immorality. So I'm not totally surprised that the Spirit of God chooses not to put that word in the New Testament. Then there's the word storge, also translated love in the New Testament. And this is the kind of love between family members. It's driven by bloodline. And so there's a family love that people of the same family typically have, though Paul warns that in the end of time, before Jesus comes back, in the last days, 2 Timothy 3, people will be astorge, ah, the prefix cancels out natural love. They will be without natural love. And my, are we seeing that today? Parents who don't love their kids and kids who don't love their parents. There's a third word in the New Testament that we're going to find here in our text. It's the verb phileo. The noun is philos. We get words like philanthropic or Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And it is a love that is between friends. It's, it's, a, it's a friendship kind of love that people can have. And then there's a fourth word, agapao or agape. Sometimes we anglicize it and we say agape love. There's no such word agape, but agapao love. It's willful love, a decision love, a love that says, I won't quit. And it's used negatively in the Bible of people who love their evil deeds, but most often it is used positively in the Bible, like God so loved the world he gave his only son. It's a love that has staying power. It's the word that Jesus uses when he says, love one another just like I have loved you. And they did not have to imagine what agapao, agape love, so to speak, looked like because they had seen it visibly witnessed for three plus years. Now, I will say this. When you meet someone and they try to put one over you, like you can't understand the Bible because you don't know Greek, you ought to be highly cautious and suspect of that. Now listen, people put down those who know the original languages, but the reason you and I have an excellent translation on our laps this morning is because men and women took the time to learn Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, the three languages of the Bible, some who have given their whole life to it, to produce good translations. But there are a handful of places where indeed it is difficult to understand what is going on in the text because sometimes English is indeed a beggar for words. And this is one of those places. But the New American Standard Bible, when you come to one of those places, they put a footnote. And if you don't have the New American Standard, without a doubt it is the single most precise English translation that is available to us today. Most people who teach the Bible verse by verse use that. Why? Because as they prepare, like I do in the original languages every week, there's nothing quite like the New American Standard. But when there is an issue going on, you'll see a little footnote. So notice in your text, if you have the NASB with footnotes, in verses 15, 16, and 17, you'll see after the word love, the number one, and in a couple places, the number two. 
When you see a number one above a word or a number two or a number three, whatever it is in a given verse, you go out into the margin. Sometimes it will say L-I-T, meaning literally. In other words, sometimes out in the margin, they'll give you the literal rendering of the English word. They don't put it in the body of the text because it's a little wooden and it doesn't read with good English grammar, but it's helpful sometimes to know the literal reading. Or sometimes out in the margin, it will say or, meaning there's not a single English word that will render this, but here's another word that we could have also have used in the body of text. Typically, that's how it's used. Or in this case, if you go out into the margin of the text, you will look at the number one and what does it say? Don't look at me, look at your Bibles. Mm-hmm. Agapao. And the number two, it says phileo. Because there are two different Greek words that are going on here. Now, if you don't have the New American Standard with marginal notes, I've got good news for you. If you come to meet the pastor, through the generosity of a family, you'll get a beautiful one for free with marginal notes. Now, the translators recognize that these are not synonyms for love, that there's a play on words that is going on. Now, you might hear some Bible commentators say, oh, they're just synonyms, they're being used interchangeably. You cannot build a case for that, especially when the words are used in close proximity, because in all the other cases, clearly, there is a play on words that is going. Sometimes you'll hear some liberal commentators say, well, Jesus spoke Aramaic, And so there's no significance to these different Greek words for love because he spoke Aramaic and there's only one word in Aramaic for love. Well, number one, it's highly debatable that there's just one word in Aramaic for love. Number two, we don't know what language Jesus was speaking at this moment. Paul spoke three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. You find that as you read the book of Acts. Jesus stood before Pilate. It is doubtful that Pilate knew Hebrew, yet there seemingly is no translator there when Jesus is before Pilate and he has an interchange with him, much less the other king. It's very possible he was speaking in Greek. Or if you make an argument that there's just one word in Aramaic for love, you can inflect a word like we do in English and mean something else. I said to my wife going out the door, I love you, hon. I said to her last night, I said, honey, I really love you. Different nuance depending on how you inflect the word. Well, the New American Standard translators recognize there's a distinction here. In fact, if you're using the New International Version, which is not known for being a literal translation, it's what we call a fluid equivalent, they translate the word agapao, truly love, and the word phileo, love. But they are picking up that there's a difference in the words, and that's good. So first question, stay with me. I hope I'm not losing you, but you are intelligent thinking persons, and you can get this if you will apply yourself. So in verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Put the letter A over that word love. It's the word agapao, willful love. Jesus is saying, Simon, do you love me with all your heart more than these other men? Simon, do you super love me? Are you prepared now to say that you love me more than these disciples love me? Do you have the kind of willful love that in essence you said you had on the night I was betrayed, that you claimed you had, that if everyone else forsook you, you would not? Do you love me that way? Do you agapao me? 
Notice Peter's answer in verse 15. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. Over the second word for love, put the letter P. It's the verb phileo. Here Peter comes down. He doesn't use the Lord's unconditional, willful love. He says, yes, Lord, you know I have a great affection for you. I may have betrayed you, but I have a great affection for you. He knew he couldn't claim the fullest kind of love for the simple reason his life did not back it up. But he knew that though he did not have that kind of love and wanted to have that kind of love, he could at least say, you know, Lord, I have a strong affection for you. Peter has been humbled through the whole process. No boasting. Never again will Peter ever, ever, ever brag. Never again is he going to say, Lord, I'm going to do something super big for you. He's a broken man and now usable. And so the Lord accepts where Peter is. Notice what he said. He said to him, tend my lambs. Now, do you see what he did? He didn't say, well, Peter, because you only have a phileo love, because you only have a strong affection for me, but not an unconditional, sold-out, willful love, no matter what, a non-quitting love, you're done. Who's next? Thomas, what kind of love do you have? He doesn't do that. He receives Peter. He accepts him right where he is. Peter, if you are humble enough to acknowledge that your love is not what it ought to be, then you're in the right place. Take the job. Tend my lambs. Now, the word lambs is a word of a, uh, for a little baby lamb. Simon Peter, if you love me, I want you to go and graze my little baby lambs. I want you to feed them. That's huge that there are little baby lambs that Christ presupposes will be members of his church. And I am convinced that we have lost this. You go to a lot of churches. I did a baptism in a church once. And when I went into the baptismal to check it out, there were cobwebs in it. Because it had been that long. And there's cobwebs in a lot of baptisms. They are rarely used these days. There's not many little lambs because many of God's people have lost their love and passion to be fishers of men. And sometimes Christians think it's their job to criticize little, little lambs because when little lambs come into the church, they're wearing the world all over them. They're brand new creatures in Christ, and the sanctification process has only begun. But Jesus didn't give us that commission. He said, tend them, Bosco, look after them with food. Why? Because they're hungry. And again, this presupposes that we're looking for lost sheep. And this presupposes there are new believers in the local church. And it presupposes that a pastor is willing to tend those little lambs. That's why I spent 25 years having followed up literally thousands of new Christians, writing the discovery course and rewriting it and tweaking it, so that if there's a new baby lamb in our church, they have a class where they can go to and they can learn and dig into the scriptures and grow and mature in their faith. 
And if a pastor does that too from the pulpit, he has to be willing to be criticized for repetition. Yes, I taught this text seven years ago. Why are you teaching it again? Because we need to hear it again. Oh, you taught that truth six months. Why are you teaching again? Because there's new people who've come in the door who've met the Savior, and they too need to be grounded in truth. And if you get so arrogant that you are super spiritual, man, don't bore me with this. I could preach it myself. Then your heart is a million miles away. Second question, verse 16. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Again, put the word A over it. It's the word agapao. Do you truly love me? You could paraphrase it, Peter. And this time he leaves off, notice, more than these. Maybe, Simon Peter, you cannot boast that you love me more than these other disciples. But do you love me? To which he responds, yes, Lord, you know Phileo, put a P over there. You know I love you. Peter is saying, maybe I can't love you with a consistent, persistent, willful, agape love, but I can say I phileo you. You know that I have great affection for you. It's not a mature agapeo love, but you know, Lord, that I love you. Peter's not boasting anymore. He's put himself in a lower position. And so now comes Christ's second affirmation in verse 16. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. Now, the New American Standard is most precise in translating it shepherd because it is a different word than the first command, tend or feed. You feed or tend with food little baby lambs, and they will eat it all up because they are hungry. But with older sheep, it involves shepherding. They need a little more direction and discipline and depth. Lambs need to be fed with milk. Older Christians need to be fed with meat. And that's why in every sermon as a pastor, I am called to do both. And I tell the new believers, I tell even the kids who come into the office, don't worry about the things you don't understand. If you will come with a teachable heart, God will show you something. So I have to feed the believer who's been saved for a month, and I have to feed the believer who's been saved for 30 years and everything in between. Peter, keep on tending my little lambs with food, and then when they get to be sheep, keep directing them with food. He said to him, third question. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Put the, word P, the letter P over this word for love. It's a different word. Not like in the first two questions, do you agapao me? But Simon Son of John, do you phileo me? Now, Jesus adapts the word that Peter uses for love. Simon, son of John, do you really have a strong affection for me? And this hits Peter hard. Peter, you said two times you have a strong affection for me, but I'm asking you this third time, do you really have an affection for me? He's putting Peter's phileo love to the test. But please understand, this is part of his restoration. He is saying, Peter, is this affection that you say you have for me, is it verified in your life? And in one sense, that kind of shatters Peter. But Christ loves him anyway. 
and he will still affirm him for a third time. Three times the Lord Jesus asks him a question because three times Peter disowns him. And it's obvious from Peter's answer that there's not a trace of boasting or a trace of self-sufficiency or a trace of self-righteousness in this guy. The text says in verse 17, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you phileo me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. He could say that because he believed Jesus is Lord. He's the omniscient God in his resurrected body, now being able or choosing to express all of his divine attributes. You know that I love you, that I phileo you. What grieved Peter is not that Jesus asked him three times, but on this third time, he brought it down to Peter's word, to which Peter says, Lord, you know I have a personal affection for you. You know what I said. You know what I did. You know what I am. You know everything about me. You are the sovereign, omnipotent, reigning God. You know everything in this universe, and you know that while I may not have that willful agape love, you know I got phileo love. And Peter can only appeal to the fact that Jesus knows everything about him. He's not bragging. He knows that the Lord knows his heart. He's a broken man. He's grieved, not with Christ, but in facing up to his own inconsistency and immature love. And now comes the third affirmation. Jesus said to him, tend or feed my sheep, which tells me that Christ is not trying to shame Peter. He's trying to reaffirm Peter. And he goes back to the first word, tend, that he used in verse 15. And now he applies it to the sheep because Christ's sheep not simply need to be led, they need to be fed. Even the ones who are not little lambs, even those who are sheep, because let me tell you, you never, ever, ever grow out of the basics. Peter, if you have affection in your heart, then show it by grazing, by feeding, and tending my sheep. And that's what a pastor is called to do. He's called to feed the sheep, but he's also called to lead the sheep, to take the truth of God's word and to apply it. He is to be involved in Peter, uh, Paul's words with reproving, rebuking, exhorting, with great patience and instruction. Yes, there are false shepherds who come to entertain, to bring in a crowd, there are false shepherds who come in who just don't want to say anything about sin and just want to make you feel good and tickle your ears. And then sadly, there are true shepherds who are so consumed with so many other things that sheep come in and they look up and they leave hungry. And unfortunately, there is a famine in our land for the word of God. Teaching and shepherding the sheep is to be the constant nourishing practice of a local pastor. Sometimes you will hear a person naively say, well, he's a good teacher, but he's not a good pastor. Or they'll reverse it and say, well, he's a good pastor, but he's not a good teacher. The Bible knows nothing of those two statements. There is no such thing that a person is a good pastor and not a good teacher, or that he's a good teacher and not a good pastor. The two are bled together. When Paul speaks of certain, not offices, but leadership gifts in the early church, and he gave some as apostles, that's di distinct from the office, some as prophets, that's distinct from, some as apostles, some as prophets, 
and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. The last and between pastors and teachers is a different and in Greek. It's the way you put a slash. Pastor slash teacher. A pastor is a teacher. He is supposed to study hard, give himself, like Acts 6 says, to prayer and to the teaching of the word, not just in reaching the lost, but in feeding the saved. Some people have the idea that a pastoral ministry is just, you know, running around and visiting the sick and having a cup of coffee with everyone. That's not pastoral ministry. A pastoral ministry is feeding the flock. Just drinking coffee is just drinking coffee. And interestingly here, these are not nouns for tend or shepherd. These are verbs. It's not like, you, well, you wear the title pastor. It's a verb. You are actively caring, feeding, shepherding, leading the people of God. And please note, it does not say tend your sheep, your sheep or shepherd your sheep, but tend my lambs. Shepherd my sheep, because they're not my sheep and my lambs in the truest sense. They are Christ. He bought them with his own blood. This is not my church or the elders' church. It's Christ's church, and we as elders are called stewards, which implies accountability. What we find here in John 21 is a beautiful act of grace that Jesus shows in reaffirming Peter as a shepherd in the church. Now, I don't think for a moment, again, as my Roman Catholic friends argue, that Peter is being established in some place of supremacy as the first pope over all the other apostles. Certainly, Peter is a leader amongst leaders. He's in the inner three. He's entrusted to the keys of the kingdom. Keys open things. And he is the first one who is privileged to give the gospels to the Jews in Acts 2. And he is the first one who is privileged to give the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts 10. But Jesus is giving Peter a word of affirmation, reinstating him in front of all the other men. Now, beyond the restoration of Peter, very quickly, the revelation of Peter's death. We're almost done. The revelation of Peter's death. Notice in verse 18, he begins with Christ's word, Christ's word of revelation. There's a word of revelation that is given here in verse 18. Truly, truly, amen, amen, literally, meaning what I'm about to say is very important. Whenever Jesus said truly, truly, it's like, listen up, this is important. I say to you when you were younger, Peter used to be a young man. People say, well, the disciples, you know, were 16, 17, 18. That's nonsense. They don't get that anywhere any more than they get that Mary was 13 or 14 when she was married. When you were younger, you're not anymore, but neither are you old. But when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. He's simply saying, Peter, when you were younger, you did your own thing. You dressed yourself. You went wherever you wanted to go. Nobody hassled you. Nobody told you what to do. But then he adds, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Jesus is saying, Peter, in your old age, when you grow old, you will not have the same freedom. Someone else will gird you. Someone else will stretch out your hand. Someone else will bring you or lead you to the place where you do not need, want to go. Someone else will be the master of your movements. 
And of course, the stretching out of one's hands is a euphemism for crucifixion. And I could document it this morning by quoting many first century writers like Cyprian or Arrhenius or Josephus, but I'll skip that for the sake of time. But just know this is a short-range prophecy given to us by the Lord as to how the end of Peter's life would come. He's predicting that Peter will die by crucifixion. Peter, they're going to dress you. They're going to gird you for a crucifixion, which usually meant they stripped you naked and only left a loincloth on you. And they will carry or walk you to a place in which you do not want to go, namely to the place of execution. And Peter, not only will they gird you and walk you, then they will stretch out your hands by tying you to a cross member. And of course, there are many crucifixions that have been documented to us, and you would tie the person to the cross member as they carried that cross member to the place of execution before they nailed you to it. And in case you missed these enigmatic words, he says, now he said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus said, all of this is going to happen. Why? So you can glorify God. Peter will later write, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. You ask, how can a Christian glorify God when he's persecuted? Because people watch how you respond to adversity. They they see our reaction. And we'll either bring praise and honor or glory to him, or we won't. I was speaking to my grandsons this week, and one of them didn't get invited. And they didn't invite him to this movie that all these other kids were going to. Because they already knew that their parents would say no. And their parents said no, because there was language in it. Something about Captain America. I don't know the name of the movie. Ask my wife, she'll tell you. And not only was there language in it, they had a subtle message of homosexuality in it. And as parents, we're supposed to guard our children's minds and we're to guard our own minds. And I told those little guys, I said, look, sometimes it's going to be lonely and you're going to be left out. But God will honor that. He will bless that. He will use you. My wife was reading to me Twitter, and we were following this lady who claims to be a born-again Christian. And, of course, she's endorsing the homosexual lifestyle. She's speaking at a conference where two gay men who are supposedly born-again Christians are going to speak. And the last thing she writes was, I'm in the hospital, I've got an infection, pray for me. My only regret is I'm not going to see games of, uh, Throne of Games or Games of Throne. What, what is it? I don't The next tweet said, find me one person on the earth who doesn't know what Games of Thrones are or Thrones of, I don't, what is it? You got it. I said, I don't know what it is. I think it's a video game. Audrey said, I don't know what it is either. And we look it up, only to find out that it's filled with pornography and sensuality. 
And Christians across America are watching it. And they wonder why they don't have the intuitiveness to guard their own children's heart when their hearts are filled with filth. So here's Peter. And like a good shepherd, like the good shepherd of John 10, he's going to feed and he's going to shepherd the flock of God his whole life. And yes, he is going to be crucified. Some say upside down, very difficult to substantiate that tradition, but it is clear, as Jesus said, and history documents it, that Peter was indeed crucified. He lived all the way to the end. In spite of his faults and his failings, he glorified God even in his death. Now comes Christ's word of rebuke. Beyond the word of revelation, there's a word of rebuke. Verse 20 Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. It appears now that Peter and the Lord are walking down the beach, and at this point, they're having a private conversation. Everyone was present when he said, do you love me more than these? But now the Lord makes this statement, and Peter turns around, and he notices John is following him, the one who had leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? The disciple whom Jesus loved, John, the author of this gospel. John had a special relationship with the Lord Jesus because Jesus' earthly mother, Mary, and John's mother, Salome, are sisters. You can put that together with a number of accounts. But not only did they have a special relationship, maybe he was four or five years younger, maybe they grew up together as kids, I don't know. But he, they had a close friendship. And it helps me to understand the kind of question that Peter also had a close friendship with John asks. Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? His own prognosis is not good. He's going to be crucified. What about John? Lord, you told me what I'm going to face. What about my buddy here? Jesus said, if I want him to remain, that is alive on earth, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Look, Peter, you're going to die for me by crucifixion. What happens to John is none of your concern. Even if he lives until I return, what does that have to do with you? If it is my will for John to be alive at the rapture and for you to die beyond the rapture, that should not be your concern at this point. And hey, friends, parenthetically, it reminds me that you don't need to have every single question answered in order to follow Jesus. Some people have told me over the years they will not follow Christ until they get all their questions answered. Listen, there are some things in this life that you will not know. There are some things you don't need to know. And there are some things that are none of your business to know. Follow me. If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And it's a reminder to me that God puts different calls in different people's lives. And sometimes we would be very wise not to poke our nose into their business. John had a different call. He outlived all the other apostles. He gave us at the end of his life, not just the gospel of John in three letters, but the book of the Revelation. God puts different calls, so don't go around and say, well, I think this person should be in the ministry, or I think this person shouldn't be a pastor, or I think this person should be teaching Sunday school, or I think this person should go on a mission trip. Just mind your own business and do what you are called to do. Like Peter, sometimes we want to manage other people's lives. Therefore, verse 23, this saying went about among the brethren that that disciple would not die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? 
It's amazing how rumors get started and how they can take root. And I imagine that people, especially as John got older and older, man, Jesus is coming any day. There are prophecy nuts in that day and in our day who abuse the doctrine of biblical prophecy. You know, like the book written, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come in 1988, and it made the guy a millionaire. Obviously not true. And it was circulated in John's day that Jesus was going to come ever before Jesus died, but that did not represent the truth. And notice how John straightens them out in verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple, the beloved disciple just spoken of, John. This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his witness is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. In other words, he's saying, we could have written so much. We could have written so much about Jesus' life. You wouldn't have enough books on this earth. Listen, the Gospels represent just 21 days out of the life of Christ. A complete account of the human life of Christ, of this infinite person, would really take an infinite number of books. An infinite number of books to handle the infinite person and the infinite love of Christ. Written on the wall of an asylum were these words we sing them. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Doesn't sound too crazy to me. The whole universe couldn't contain it. And maybe in eternity we'll hear the rest of the story. Now, how are we going to apply this? Let me make some applications as we close. Number one, your love for the Savior is a prerequisite for your service. Love for the Savior is the prerequisite for all service. The one question that Peter is asked in being commissioned to serve, to tend his flock, concerned his love. Paul will say to the Corinthians, the love of Christ constrains me. That is, it drives me. A lot of people want to serve and minister because it gives them a big head. It makes them feel good about themselves. They build a reputation for themselves. But do you love me? And someone who really loves the Lord Jesus Christ will serve him and they will serve in the local church in his body where God calls them first and foremost to serve. Look at other qualities may be desirable, but love is indispensable. If you develop the attitude, I have to do this, that's legalism. But when you're in love with Christ, I get to do this. I have to go to church on Sunday. No, I get to go to church and worship with the people of God. I know your deeds, he said to Ephesus, your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you've put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, good stuff, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary, stayed true to their faith, despite the paganism all around them there in Ephesus. But Jesus says to this second generation of Christians in Ephesus, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You have a heart problem. 
You've got a problem inside, therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. This is 30 years after Paul plants the church in Ephesus. And he doesn't tell them, John, here in the Revelation in one of the seven churches to conjure up some kind of feeling. He tells them to obey. Do the deeds you did at first. Go back to your first works. Why? Because what does a new Christian does? He can't stop telling people about Jesus. He's excited about reading and studying the Word. He wants to talk to God throughout the day. Go back and do your first deeds. They were to remember the fervor they once had, the wonder they had over the glorious salvation that Christ had given them. And if they would not, Christ would remove their lampstand, either personally or as a church. Sometimes there's first a cooling off in a person's heart. And then their love for Christ is replaced with a love for the things of the world. And there's compromise, and there's spiritual corruption. And how we must guard our hearts in this day, because as we approach the end of the age, Jesus said, lawlessness, sin will increase, and most people's love will grow cold. Second, as Christians, we're called not only to win the lost, but to nurture the saved. Now, the image in the first half of the chapter that I did not preach today is that of a fisherman, and that if we follow him, they will become fishers of men. And in the second half of this chapter, the image is replaced with that of a shepherd. And Peter was to be both a fisherman catching the fish, and he is to be a shepherd of the flock. And it's unfortunate when we divorce those two. Pastors are called, whether they have the gift of evangelism or not, to do the work of an evangelist. And like Peter, they are called to shepherd the flock. Now, I understand that the text that we're studying first and foremost applies to pastors and to apostles. Understand, all apostles are pastors. Not all pastors are obviously apostles. And so while this is a principal duty of a pastor... Three principal things. Young guys asked me, what do I do? I said, three things. Pray, win the lost, share your faith, teach the word. Those are your three principal leadership functions as a pastor. But remember, two pastors are called to be examples to the flock. And since the Great Commission is not just to pastors, but to all believers, there's a sense in which all of us can help in winning the lost and feeding the saved. You know, there are some of us today who are kind of like Peter. If someone came up to you and said, well, do, do you love Jesus Christ? You say, yeah, I love Jesus. Well, do you love him with that rich, total, willful, non-compromising, yeah, I love him a lot. And Jesus might say, do you even have a strong affection for me? Maybe you're at the university studying and there's someone there on the campus you can bring to the Savior. Maybe you are listening to me this morning and God is calling you to be a missionary or to be a pastor. Maybe you're married and you have some children in the home and 
God is calling you to try to nurture their hearts, to bring them into the kingdom, and then to begin to feed them week after week as you let the word of God first reverberate in your own life. Maybe you're here today and you could teach an adult Bible fellowship, or you could serve in Awana or in vacation Bible school this summer. Maybe you're a brand new Christian, but you could get another brand new Christian to sit with you in discovery class for 45 weeks. I'm simply asking, are you willing to do those critical first things that God calls every believer to do? Some have the gift of teaching. Some have the gift of pastor teacher. Some have the gift of evangelist. But there's some common responsibilities we all share. Finally, God is the God of the second chance. That's what I learned. God is the God of the second chance and is willing to restore even those who have failed. What an outstanding section of Scripture that God has left for us here in this chapter. Peter had failed the Lord, and he might have thought, how could God ever use me again? How could I ever really even be anointed of God? And Jesus deals with him not just privately, but publicly, because he loves this guy like he loves you unconditionally. Now, if you're here, and you've never repented and believed, you will never see the inside of the kingdom of God. Unless you repent, you likewise will perish. You say in John's gospel, the word repent never appears. That's because it is impossible to believe without repenting. When you come to Christ, you come there with your sin, that it's evil, it's wicked, and it needs to be changed. You cannot come on your terms. You come on his terms. If you will call upon him today, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let's stand together for prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. You've given us a fresh week in front of us. Some of us remember the passion we had as new Christians where we could not stop telling people about your son, but we've lost that and our hearts have grown weak and cold because we've let other things come in. We've cooled off. We've stopped the first things and the things of the world have replaced our passionate love for Jesus. Before this day is over, I pray that we will deal with the issues of our hearts, that they might be clean before you, that you might restore us to the ministry and the purposes that you have for us in this life. Father, we know when we come to the end of this life, what will be important are not the things that we've accumulated or the fame that we've gained, All that will matter is what was done for the Lord Jesus. May we do it out of a sincere and fervent love for him. I pray today, Father, for someone who is here, who is uncertain that heaven is their home. Help them to know today that they can know that they have eternal life, as your word says. Because it is not earned, it is a gift that is received, paid for in full with the blood of your Son. Thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. May we be fishers of men this week as we go out into the community. And I pray today for someone here who does not have that assurance that they will say, Lord Jesus, save me. And give them the courage to confess him before men. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.